Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. Hello, friends. Thank you for being here. So part of the reason I wanted to do this podcast in the first place is that I wanted to talk to more people about more things. Uh, As most of you know, I work on a court show. I used to work on a different show. I'm now on a new show. It's called Tribunal. It'll be on Amazon Freebie uh, coming soon. But, you know, look, when you are in court, either as the decision maker or as the person who's trying to convince the decision maker of something. You really have to approach your problem in a certain way. Um, Arguing in court is not like arguing with your mother uh, or your friends. And so I wanted to have this podcast because I just wanted to have more types of conversation. And I wanted to engage with people who weren't just in the middle of a dispute, but you know, sometimes they figured out ways beyond disputes. They've solved problems or they just have interesting things to share. I, so the whole subject of banning books is something that concerns me because while uh, certainly there are, there's material that some of us may find offensive or disagreeable or what have you, I think that we are all better off when there's more information out there. Read it, argue it, let's talk about it. But banning things concerns me. Uh, And that is part of the subject of my conversation with my next guest, uh, George Johnson. They are the author of All Boys Aren't Blue, uh, which I believe was the third most banned book of 2021. So we talk about book bans and some other things. Uh, I hope you enjoy our conversation. I look forward to engaging with you about the conversation uh, respectfully. And again, you know, we're all free to disagree about things, but let's just approach each other with a little more care. But right now, listen to this conversation about book bands. Here I am with George Johnson. Welcome to the podcast, George. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. You are the 2022 chair of the Banned Books Week Coalition. Tell us about that coalition and what you're doing. Yeah, so Banned Books Week was started about 40 years ago um, by educators and librarians and teachers when they started noticing that like certain books were getting banned from uh, school systems. And so 40 years later, we have reached our probably the largest uh, attempt to ban and remove books from education systems, books that primarily focus on Black stories, uh, queer stories, uh, and Black and queer stories. Uh, And they're being challenged uh, across the country and have become basically a political issue uh, for the midterm elections. Uh, So what I do and what we do is uh, we use our voices to advocate primarily on behalf of the youth and the young adults who desperately want to learn more about not just themselves, but about the people that exist around them, as well as the world that they will one day enter into as adults. And we are challenging, I guess, the adversaries uh, to allow these teenagers who are so vocal and so powerful and so brilliant to have these books and these texts uh, within the classroom so that they can learn from them. What are some of the books that are being banned? Give us some examples. You have 
of course, Toni Morrison is on the list, which is just uh, in the year 2022, just kind of like ridiculous that we are still removing The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison uh, from curriculum. Angie Thomas's The Hate You Give has pretty much been a part of the band book list since it was released. But anyone who has read the beautiful work that is The Hate You Give uh, knows that that is a book and a text that is very relevant to these times. My book, All Boys Aren't Blue, is the third most challenged in the country, the second most banned in the country. And then you have uh, several other books that, uh, like Long Boy and Gender Queer, which are number uh, one and two on the on most of the list. Uh, those books have also been challenged across the country. It's interesting, though, because you have some states that just have like a hit list of like five books or seven books. And then you have states like Texas that have banned 850 books. And so it's it, it's running across the gamut. Uh, there are certain books that pretty much make every single list. Uh, but we have certain states like Texas with these very, very huge lists of removing curriculum. But then you also have states like Florida who enacted a don't say gay bill, which pretty much was a workaround that eliminated the ability for any book that talked about queerness uh to exist in any curriculum so yeah that's that's pretty much been the the challenge it's been like i said some counties as small as just one book being challenged all the way up to states like texas with 850. speaking of banned books one book that has long been controversial we've both read it is huckleberry finn there are these new sanitized versions that don't have the n-word now when i was little and i read huckleberry finn I read it with the N-word, and my parents actually, you know, were part of an intervention that helped teach me that book. Uh, What do you think about efforts to sanitize books like that? So now, you know, I'm not so much talking about the constituency that wants to ban books about current experiences. I'm talking about folks who are like, you know what? I don't want my child ever to see, like, I don't think anybody should ever read the N-word in something that's considered a classic. What do you, what's your perspective on that? Yeah, it's interesting uh, because it's almost like it's become the new way of teaching American history how a historic, how they've always taught American history from an ahistorical perspective this attempt to like sanitize the books kind of falls in line with that. And that's pretty dangerous. Uh, And when people are like, well, why would you want like to keep the original version of the book? It's like, think about it. Like they make us pledge allegiance to a flag that was created while our people were still slaves. They make us learn the constitution that says we, the people, while our people were not considered people. But the nowadays version of we, the people, when we say it, we're supposed to be proud of that, but these versions and these things were not written during those times. And so they're taught a historically now. And so if you then take the texts of those times and sanitize them, it then also pulls you further away from the actual history of this country and what this country really looked like in the 1700s and the 1800s. And so we're not even advocating to say, like, take these texts away. It's no, we need these texts because these texts need to almost be taught simultaneously with the new texts that you're trying to remove so that people can understand that 
when we're talking about, you know, because even in my book, I use the N word, but I talk about it from two perspectives. I talk about it as a slur and I talk about it as how many black people use it as a term of endearment. And so what we are actually asking is that these teachers need to be teaching the fact that these materials were written this way because of the time we were in. And because of the time we were in, this is what was going on during that time. When you sanitize it, there's no need to then even make reference to the time period it was written. Um, Or what you're doing is you're making reference to the time period it was written absent slavery, absent the the brutality, absent the fact that these words were being used during those times, Uh, which again falls right in line with (laughs) <laughs> why I played Abraham Lincoln in a school play in the third grade. And it was the lead character as a black kid because history was so sanitized that he was taught to us as like the savior who freed my people so that I could be in a classroom with you white kids today. Um, and, and, but that's really what happens when you make history become sanitized. Uh, well, I do like the idea you know? of you as little Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln. I do think I we should do more time. of that. I thought it was great. I think we should do that. <laughs> but I do, you know, you, you make an excellent point because when we try to sanitize it, then what we're really doing is erasing part of our history and what our ancestors lived and what they had to endure and experience. I'm like, publish it publish it in its original and teach it. Don't teach it like it's normal to talk to black folks like that. Teach it as if that is where we were. And we, the people only get better if we have a true and honest understanding of where we come from. You can't fix things if you don't acknowledge what's broken. That's the best way to put it. You can't fix what you are unwilling to acknowledge. And I mean, I think that's probably sums up (laughs) where we are today in America. It's like fixing problems that no one actually wants to acknowledge (laughs) exist. Yeah, I I think that those type of texts should remain in schools, whether it's that, whether it's um, To Kill a Mockingbird, because that's been banned multiple times as well. But there's a lot of lessons to be learned from To Kill a Mockingbird. I mean, most interestingly, that Atticus Finch was a raging racist, but you don't find that out until the next book. But until the next believed, book, right? But he believed in the law, which again is why I watch Court TV because he, as a lawyer, was like, "I can be this racist, but also know that this black man should have rights under this law and be protected and all of those things." Which I then learned that Francis Scott Key, who wrote the Star Spangled Banner, who used to own slaves, then became a lawyer who fought to free slaves through the court system. And so I was like, that is literally Atticus Finn. And I was like, it, it just all tied together, like once I started really learning about the history of like freedom suits and stuff. So it's like, that's why we need to keep these type of texts because that, like with To Kill a Mockingbird, you can then literally go back into history and teach how that actually was a real thing that existed. You had slave owners who were lawyers who also were fighting to free slaves through the court system because of certain legalities. Talk to us a little bit about what is informing some of this, because as I hear the advocates who are in favor of some of these bans, not all of them, I mean, some of them are just, you know, They only want to hear what they want to hear. They only want to read what they want to read and to heck with the rest of us. Let's put those sorts of extremists to the side. There is one argument that is being made that resonates, I think, with a lot more mainstream people, which is that 
some of these books are not age appropriate for everybody. Explain or distinguish, uh, if you would, the difference between, you know, what's happening. Like, we just don't want this content as opposed to yeah. some of this content is not appropriate for kids of all ages. Okay. And so that's where a lot of the conflation uh, comes in with what the argument from the other side is. So oftentimes what they will do is instead of saying young adults or teenagers, they will say kids or children, almost like dog whistling, like my book is being handed to a third grader. When realistically, you can look everywhere online. My book is specifically for teens age 14 to 18. So you won't even find my book where fifth graders and sixth graders go to libraries because the book isn't there. Toni Morrison's book, The Bluest Eye, is a adult book. It's not even a young adult book. So even though it is being used in you know some high school curriculums, The Bluest Eye would never be found in an elementary school because it's an adult book. So, But some books do have that crossover effect where they can be an adult book that crosses over into young adult, which is typically uh, 14 to 18 as the range. And so what's happening is they are basically trying to say that our books aren't age appropriate, but one, most of them haven't read the full books. They have pulled passages from the book that they think aren't appropriate. Uh, the second straw man argument is this issue over parental rights, which we know that's not really what it is because you're telling the parents that want their teens to read the book that they, that they shouldn't have the book either. So we're like, this really can't be about that either. I think as authors though, like to be honest with the whole situation, I think they want us to like to pin us. Like we just feel like everybody should be forced to read our work. And we're like, we're not saying that. Like if you want your child to be opted out of reading our text, nobody has an issue with that. But what we have an issue with is in a classroom of 23 students, the, the parents of two students don't want the other 22 to have access to a book that the other 22 parents want their, uh, their, their children to have access to. And so that's really what's happening is that the age appropriate argument is it only came up because like some of our books made one reading list where it said like sixth and seventh graders and like our books happened to pop on that list. But it was because the list was a cumulative list. And so there was like the book wasn't even in the middle school libraries, which is why a lot of times parents have tried to challenge our books and then have come to learn that the books aren't even in the libraries <laughs> because our books don't exist. Most of them don't exist in middle school libraries because they're for young adults. So they literally are in high school libraries. By the way, I read The Bluest Eye in college. <laughs> so what do these other 22 parents do? You know, what should they do? They are, uh, you know, I mean, the way the world typically works, George, is that the loudest voices who have time to make the most noise and be the most disruptive get the most attention. And maybe yes. those, there are those two parents in the classroom who have that kind of time. The other 22 are going to work, trying to do their thing, trying to raise their families. They don't have time necessarily to go to the after-school meeting and fight with those two who are trying to control the libraries. What, do, what are the resources available to the vast majority of people who want to have open and free access to reading material. I mean, goodness, this is the United States of America. So what do those folks do if they don't have time to be full-time activists? 
Yeah, it's it's tough because if you've even watched the school board meetings lately, they're they're very violent. They're very dangerous. People have shown up with guns. To we're talking about the school board meetings for the book bans. Um, it was so bad in Florida because Florida was the state where I got my first criminal complaint against me and the criminal complaint filed against the book. I had to video in my response to the school board meeting uh, because it was too dangerous for me to actually attend. Uh, So it's gotten that bad. And so we're grateful for the parents that are able to show up to advocate on behalf of teens being able to have access to the books. But one of the things we've been doing is also empowering the teens to tell their story and tell why they want the books. A lot of the teens don't know that they have the federal law on their side with the 1982 PICO case, which dictates that teens have the right to access certain materials in their high school libraries. And so a lot of teens have been advocating for themselves against some of the parents. A lot of teens have even had to go to school board meetings against their own parents um, to, to, to say that th- these materials are needed and necessary. I think the main thing that we just ask of parents, like if they've actually read the book or if they're actually advocating on our behalf is to just say publicly, you don't have to necessarily do it at a school board meeting, but I've seen a lot of parents uh, use TikTok. Uh, to advocate for the books and to adv- to fight against the book bans. Uh, and it's been wonderful to see all of those type of messages, uh, especially because the librarians are taking the biggest hit. So yeah, like it, it, we don't need everybody to be an activist. I don't think everybody's born to, you know, have that type of spirit within them. But I do think that people can advocate for themselves and just sharing different messages that tell the actual truth of what the books are and why the books are necessary go a, go a very long way. So it has been a long time since I had a conversation, oh, a long time since never, that I've had a conversation with somebody who was the subject of a criminal complaint because of a book that they wrote. So now, George, you got to tell us about your book (laughs) and the controversy that it sparked. Yes. So my book is a young adult memoir called All Boys Aren't Blue. Uh, It talks about my life from birth until the age of 21. The book primarily talks about how by the age of five, I knew I was different, but I didn't know what different meant. I didn't know, like, I didn't have language to know, like, what the different feelings I was having in comparison to everybody else in my classroom was having, how to process them. And so it just talks about what my journey through being a child all the way up through college was, uh, coming to terms with my gender identity as well as my sexuality within a world and a social setting that didn't allow either of those things to have um, any space to to breathe. Uh, But the other caveat of the book is that I grew up with a Black family that was really, really accepting and supporting of queer people. My mother and grandmother always said they knew since I was two. And my mom said that like my grandmother, Nanny, and her had a conversation when I was two. And she was like, uh, my mom's name is Kay. And she was like, Kay, I think we've got another one. And she just said she could just tell by like my mannerisms and just how I was in comparison to the other grandboys at the time, like that, that I was going to be a little different than everybody else. But I always had the support of my family. I still have the support of my family today. They show up to all of my events. And so the book talks about what it was like to grow up in this loving Black family while also growing up in a society that was very much against me and how I had a lot of joy, but a lot of pain, a lot of triumph, even if I had tragedy that 
it was the totality of my experience. I didn't just want to share this one salacious side, all of the hardships. I wanted to share what the totality of that experience felt like uh, as someone growing up uh, who, who was having an identity crisis. And so that's really what the heart of my book is, is like love and this unconditional family that just ensured that I was going to be okay in the end. And what a message for young people who have a similar journey, because as many of us know, rates of depression and suicide are so high amongst uh, young queer kids because of the lack of support and feeling like uh, they're alone and being targeted and bullied, not just by their peers, but by, you know, these authority uh, figures who are uh, in their own ways calling them out and suggesting that they are less than the rest of us. You identify as gender non-binary. Tell my audience what that means, to you at least. How do you, what is that, what does that definition mean to you? (laughs) Yeah, so it's interesting. I had a conversation with my grandmother before she passed away and she looked at me and she was like, you're not just gay, right? And I was like, uh, I was, and my mind was like, where is this going? And I was like, well, no, but what's going on? And so she was like, well, the ladies at the church, they always ask uh, if you gay. And I'm always like, well, no, but if you want to know, you should ask. And so I'm like, well, what do you think I am? And so she was like, all right, I'm gonna be honest with you. She was like, you were never a boy. Like you were never really a boy, but she was like, but you were never really a girl. She was like, you just kind of sat somewhere and floated like in between those two things. And she was like, I don't know if y'all got a term for that, but just know that I know that you was neither. You just something that's kind of like in the middle of that, right? Okay, grandma. And so, <laughs> right. And I was like, we were sitting there like, what? Like, like she was really, and I was like, but that's so, to me, I was like, wow, that's so dope because like, once at this time she had a glioblastoma. So she knew she would be passing away soon. But I was like, she must have knew that I still was trying to figure out something. Um, and she just wanted, I guess, to like, let me know like that she knew, like, I know, like, I know you're not what this is. And so when I say that I'm not that, I I, I say it to say, like, I don't live in a binary. Um, I don't feel like I am either or. I, like, I feel like many, in many ways, I am a reflection of, like, all people, which is why I have some people who say bro to me, and I have some people who call me sis, and I have some people who call me they them right and it's like for me it's because i have learned that i reflect a lot in this world and so the fact that i can be a reflection or a reflection type of image to so many different people of so many different identities for me it means that i'm encompassing of all of them and that i don't have to identify as any of them and i do this a lot with um with my friends especially because i'm in a fraternity i'm a member of alpha Phi Alpha fraternity incorporated life member now and like been one for 16 years go to homecoming every year i still run our tent i still do all those things they all still say bro to me and it doesn't bother me but what i also force them to do is kind of interrogate themselves some and, you know, the same way they asked me at times, especially early on when they couldn't really understand years ago, like what was going on. I'm like, well, when did you, you know, they always say like, well, how do you know if that's what you want? Or how do you know that's how you feel? And I always go to them like, well, when did you choose to be heterosexual? Like, what was the day you decided that you told everybody that you came out as heterosexual? And they're like, well, well, no, I've just always known. I said, right. Some of us don't wake up like that. Some of us have never woke up like that. I've never woke up like that. And you know, when I was, I remember being 10 years old and like wanting to be Dominique Dawes um, from the, the gymnast, but it was like, it was more than just wanting to like, 
idolize that person. Like in my mind, in my imagination, I always thought of myself as as her and thought of myself as a person like her or as a girl. Like it, it, it never was thoughts processing in my mind like that. And because I grew up with a transgender cousin, I always assumed that one day I was going to transition when I was young because I felt that who I was was not matching the the shell of who I was uh, to the outside world. And it wasn't until I got to a place that I realized that I can, I'm okay. I actually do like existing in, in this form. Um, I'm just going to have to be really, really, really loud about the spirit that's inside of me may not always match what, what you, what you get in. And so, yeah, I think that's the easiest or the best way I can try to explain that is, you know, when you never have to question it, but you just know it, it's like, it's the same with us, but we just have to question it. But then don't doubt us when we say we know it. <laughs> what are some of your favorite books? Oh, man, some of my favorite books. You know, it's interesting when I get asked that question. I get asked that question a lot. Like, like well, what were the books you read as a kid? And I was like, y'all, like, it wasn't any books out there for people like me because, like, I wanted to read about characters that looked like me. And I got forced to read about Catcher in the Rye and, like... <laughs> Uh, Sarah playing in tall. Like I was like, I got forced, like we got forced to read these type of books. But I will say like for me, like books that I like, which is, I guess is why I primarily write a lot of nonfiction. I love history. Um, so I loved reading like they, they had like a young version readers, a young readers version of like um, the autobiography of Malcolm X. And I don't know if it was exactly the autobiography, but it was like just like his autobiography for young readers. And I remember I did a book report on that. And I was like, that was like one of the things I was like extremely proud to do as a third grader was like this book report on him. I love the three Negro classics. They gave me a lot of frame of reference for like how I really appreciate ancestors now and ancestor yeah. veneration now something else i've also gotten into is reading not just reading but listening to the uh audio of the the workman's Pro progress association that they captured i believe it was between 1938 and 1941 of the it's like 6000 record i don't even know if it's 6000 maybe less than that but there are recordings of slaves of former people who were formerly enslaved um and you can like literally go online and listen to them talk about slavery and I don't know what I entered it thinking I would hear, but like to hear like how they laughed and some of them would, were singing church songs during their recordings and some of them were like they were talking about it. But then also like they were fully human. And that changed my whole perspective of how I write about characters now, like even when I'm writing about the past. But then there are also a lot of like slave uh, narratives or slave journals and things from the past that I often like to read, too. I love diving into history. Um I guess the idea of Sankofa, like, um, you know, looking back and telling those stories of the past to help us move forward towards the future. That's my thing. Like, I, I love it. And that's why I'm doing a book on the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, that's my next book that's coming out for young oh, adults. I was just about to ask you, <laughs> what was your next book? What yeah. a fascinating period. Give us a little yes. teaser about that. So I'm writing a book. It's called Flamboyance, uh, Stories I Wish I Knew from the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, and I am chronicling, it's a collection of essays. It's not a super long book. It'll also be illustrated. But what I want it to be is I want it to be an introduction into the lives of these 13 people from the Harlem Renaissance, uh, who many of us know about, but we only know about them outside of the fact that they were queer. And so... The opening part of my book, I discuss how as 
young adults, young black adults, and just young black queer adults, how a lot of times we have our heroes stolen from us because we're taught about them in a way that we don't know that we actually have a connection to them. And so it, like when I think about like the, the Bessie Smiths and um, the Ethel Waters and some of those people, and you now look at artists today, like your little Nas X's or your Saucy Santana's and you know how you have like these queer artists now out and it's like, but they have legacy. And a lot of times we don't know it because it was never told that we had legacy. And so then a lot of us are, thinking that we're walking a path and we don't have uh, a roadmap for when the roadmap had been laid by these people, but they just never gave us the, the full instructions. And so what I'm doing is introducing people to figures from the Harlem Renaissance, including Josephine Baker, Langston Hughes, Elaine Locke, to learn like about Elaine Locke and the fact that like Martin Luther King, when he was naming two of the greatest philosophers during his uh, March, during the March of Washington speech, I forgot who the first one, I, I think he may have said Du Bois, but the second name was Elaine Locke. But nobody knew that Elaine, well, Elaine was out then though, like, so some people did know, but to then go back and hear that MLK said that one of our greatest philosophers was a black queer man, but they erased that part. And I'm like, but there's a reason that then that makes sense, right? Cause it's like, oh, well, there's a reason why we all know Du Bois and we don't know A Lane, even though Martin Luther King said two names <laughs> as our greatest philosophers. There's a reason that one of those philosophers is known and one of them is not known. And so that's what I'm doing. I'm giving the, the information. And they also were really messy. And I love that because they were fully human. Like I went into it thinking like, oh, this is going to be so great. I get to talk about these people and how they were my heroes. They was messy too. And so it was fun <laughs> to like learn about their mess. And now I get to tell some of their mess. And um, I think everybody's going to be like, oh, I had no idea this was going on. So yeah. What I think is important and really powerful, and it's something that you are doing too, it is uh, it is a tradition that you are carrying on. I shouldn't even say a, a, a tradition because we haven't done enough of it to make it a tradition, but you are normalizing and giving voice to uh, an experience that has been isolated and marginalized, and you are going to make some young people feel better about themselves. I'm going to go out on a limb and say you're going to save some lives because some folks won't feel so isolated and alone um, and targeted, like they've got no allies and nobody like them. Before we go, I heard that you like court TV, which just made my heartbeat <laughs> fast. <Yes. laughs> I'm, on a, I'm on a new show now, uh, Tribunal. It'll be on Amazon Freebie. And you will, you're absolutely invited to come to a taping at any time yes. as my guest. Absolutely. Tell me why you like court TV so much. Uh, you know, there are so many, I, I'm, I'm always fascinated by the folks, the many folks who get into it. Um, is it because like you like watching real life drama and people who actually <laughs> care about doing something about it as opposed to letting it slide? <laughs> I, so like I said, well, I have been watching Court TV probably since I was about 13. I think when Judy first aired, I was either 12 or 13. I used to watch it with my grandmother um, and sometimes my Aunt Margaret, who was her sister. Um, and I just used to love it. Like when she would like really get on people. I still watch Judge Mathis, which full circle moment. Like I'm now actually friends with uh, Greg Mathis Jr. So oh. it's like, and I even, you know, like I've met him a couple of occasions, but like I even told him, I was like, I literally watch your father's show every day at two. 
I love it though, because like you said, like there's a real human element to it. Like when you hear the cases and you hear the stories. And for me as a writer, a lot of times I'm inspired to like create characters based off of like certain cases. And so like I can hear a case about like a dog bite or like like one of those like crazy like dog biting cases or whatever. And I'll be sitting there like that should be in this story, like in this chapter, like I should write about like this, this whole dog situation or I'm like, oh, maybe a court case or, oh, maybe like the dog bit this person in the past. And so that's why they got a beef as a family over this dog situation. Like, so I'll hear things from the court cases and it'll literally get my juices flowing for the characters that I'm creating in the books and certain storylines in the books. Ms. Gabrielle Union's production yes. company has optioned <laughs> The book, uh, that's very exciting. Uh, yes. Talk to us a little bit about that, if you can. What's coming up there? Yeah. So television takes a long time. Uh, I'm always letting people know. They're like, well, George, you made this announcement two years ago. I'm like, and trust, it has taken us Trust, that's how it goes. To- <laughs> trust. I was like, trust me. And it has taken us two years to get to this point where we are now, where we should have some real deal announcements soon about it. Um, but it's it's been a beautiful process, uh, you know, watching how uh, her family has become a possibility model for so many um, parents and transgender teens. Uh, that story really, really aligned with my personal story of having very supportive parents, uh, you know, who weren't. Uh, in the press, but, you know, from a micro level, right? And I think that's what the beauty of, like, our uh, coming together is. It's like that macro-micro story um, that's happening in real time here, but that happened to me, and now we get to kind of put it out in the world so that people can see a a different spin on uh, what the main what what happens when the main character is queer and not just the sidekick. Um, We are hoping that, uh, or the, the premise of the show will be set up around my college years. Cause I went to HBCU. I went to Virginia which one? University. Which one? Where? Virginia Union University in Yay. Richmond. I went to VUU. HBCU. So, um, <laughs> yes. So the premise of the show will be set up around, uh, my college years. And so when people ask me like, well, what do you think the show? I was like, it's going to be a different world from a different perspective. <laughs> right on, right on. I can't wait. I can't wait to see it. Uh, when the moment happens, I hope you will come back here and we can talk about it and announce it and celebrate it. Thank you, George Johnson. And I really do hope you come back. Yes, I will. Thank you. 